Over the next number of weeks at Central Heights Church, we are going to focus on the beginning of God's book to us, Genesis chapters one to three. There are reasons not to do this. Perhaps there are no portions of scripture that are more debated than the Bible's end and its beginning. In 2011, a Christian organization called the Bryan Institute for Critical Thought and Practice brought together five individuals, scholars who have done serious work in Genesis, each person more brilliant and studied than I'll ever be. They presented views that in some parts were similar, but also had distinctive, significant differences from the others. So how is one to know which is right? This is an opportunity for conflict. We live in a world where it has become the norm to discount others who have a different opinion than us. We draw away, we shoot arrows, we hold those who differ in contempt. As we look at Genesis, I can guarantee you that we will not all see it the same way. This is a risk, but we must consider the role that Genesis can and should play in shaping our thinking. Chapters one to three start with creation and how something begins contains the unlocking to its purpose and goal, or to use a theological term, it's telos. I think you will see the first three chapters answer the most fundamental questions we can have about our existence. You probably seldom give yourself the time to think on what is most important to answer, yet Genesis puts forward an answer to all of these. Who is God? What is he like? Who are we? What is our purpose? And whenever you watch CNN or Fox News, what is wrong with us? It's a foundational book, and it sets the trajectory for much of our thinking. Genesis 1 to 3 touches on the nature of God, human values, sexuality, environmentalism, gender identity, male and female, marriage and family, work, evil, pain, and suffering. Oh man, and a, and a glimpse into, into man's free will and God's sovereignty. Who knew? All in these three chapters. An important book, a controversial book. And my question out th at the outset to us is this. Can we be the kind of Christians that can hold different views within Christianity and resist segregation and hostility as we love one another? To use the phrase within Christianity is to make it clear that to be a Christian, you necessarily believe that God is the creator. Daryl Charles from the Bryan Institute says, amid a number of honest and sincere interpretations by thoughtful and confessional scholars and lay people whose ideas are represented in the ancient traditions of church history, we believe and confess that God has created all that exists and that everything which constitutes the material and immaterial world was made and designed by God. The Apostles' Creed begins, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So here we go. A couple of years ago, I participated in a staff day where we went river rafting. Um, you know, you're eager to jump into your rafts, but before you do, they take the time to give you instruction and some of the context about the river you are about to enter. As we enter the waters of Genesis, before we dive into some of its subjects, we need to consider a few things. Who wrote this? A question of authorship. Why did he write this? A question of intent. And what type of writing is this? A question of genre. As you might expect, the answer to each of these questions is much disputed. And I will tell you up front, there is no way that we can thoroughly discuss each possibility in the time that we have. But I anticipate that it will open the door to much good conversation. 
Traditionally, the author of Genesis is believed to be Moses, to whom also is attributed the writings of the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch, or Law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In those books, it actually states on occasion where God had Moses write things down. And we do have what are called the Silver Scrolls in our possession now. They were found near Jerusalem in 1979, and they dated them back to the 7th century BC, containing the ironic blessing in Numbers. You've heard it to song, the Lord bless you and keep you. This casts great doubt on some of the doubters of Moses' authorship who have preposed a much later date of writing. But we know Moses couldn't have written everything in the Pentateuch. For example, the Pentateuch records his death. That would be hard to do while you are not alive. So there has been some editing after. And how much editing is, of course, debated, but a couple of things to consider. What is written in the Pentateuch is taken by the disciples and Jesus to have its source in Moses. We read in John chapter 1, verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Then Jesus, speaking to the Jews, says this in John 5, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, in Mark chapter 7, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. I hope you heard that. Not only does Jesus equate what is written in the law to Moses, but that those words that Moses gave are from God. Our confidence in, in what we have before us in Genesis and in the whole of the Old Testament or the New for that matter is that all of it is trustworthy because ultimately it all comes from God. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, the question of intent. Why did Moses write this? The people Moses led had been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They had adopted worship and idols of some of Egypt's gods. They were freed by miraculous means, taken on a journey to a promised land, and given laws to make them distinct in their relationship with God. They didn't do well. Even as Moses was receiving the law from God, in his prolonged absence up there on the mountain, they were making an idol of a golden calf. You see how they dealt God at the doorstep to their promise of the land of Canaan, and a generation will not possess what God wanted for them. And after walking around in the desert for 40 years, once again to enter the land, how will they do in the new start? So somewhere in that journey, Moses wrote a scientific textbook on how God created the world. No, that's what we bring to the text. The author has a different intent. Genesis gives a people the right picture of God. They will come against cultures which tempt them to abandon their monotheistic faith. 
But it, you understand God right, you understand the world right. You live in the world right. And it's the same for you and I and the temptations that we face. Genesis' intent is to shape our worldview so that as we live out our faith in him, we can do so with confidence and faith in the God whom Genesis shows him to be. I think this becomes more clear as you look at the question of genre, meaning the type of writing that Genesis is. In a newspaper, remember newspapers? You read an editorial different than you read a cartoon, than you read a weather report. And as you look at the creation story of Genesis and compare it to what was written around it, there are these creation stories of ancient Near East civilizations that have some similarities. They are referred to as myths that give rise to how their people were to understand their world. For example, in the Babylonian story called the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk creates out of chaos. Well, sort of. Uh, he creates out of a corpse. Marduk separates the waters and creates heavenly lights. He creates in sevens, seven tablets, creating man on the sixth. And there are stories of other civilizations also with similarities, but what you begin to see is that their differences from the Genesis creation account are far greater than the ways in which they are alike. In Marduk's world, there are many competing gods. They are evil and untrustworthy, and their view of mankind is derogatory. Mankind is made by Marduk to, to work so that the gods don't have to. In his book, Demons, Lies, and Shadows, Pierre Gilbert, associate professor of Bible and theology in Canadian Mennonite University, says that from this worldview, people live their lives before a chaotic, unseen world of supernatural beings who would inflict their vicious will on humanity through the environment, the seas, the winds, the trees. And humanity were simply slaves to the God's arbitrary will. For example, my olive crop isn't doing well. Well, maybe I have offended one of the fertility gods. How can I appease their wrath? What offering must I make? And while written in a language that people would be familiar with and understood, Genesis 1 does not borrow from other creation stories of other cultures so much as it stands as a stark contrast. Now, I take all of Genesis as history, and Adam as a real person. Uh, the chronologies in Genesis, the opinions of Hebraic scholars, the way the New Testament writers refer to Genesis, for me, all point to this conclusion. But in describing history in such a familiar way as the surrounding stories of other cultures, the similarities in story provide the basis from which to see how different the God of Israel was from the pagan notion of deities. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The opening verse reads like a title to a movie. It introduces the main character and summarizes what is about to follow. Genesis assumes that God exists. He is the only deity and he creates. When you hear the words heaven and earth, you probably have a picture in your mind of the global sphere we are so familiar with. But for them, what is meant here is simply that God created the land and the sky, meaning God created everything. And as we continue, I want you to imagine with me that you've found your seat in the movie theater and you've put on 3D glasses and this story is to be experienced. The lights are now dimmed. It's eerie. Verse 2, the earth is without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. This is not good. Two pictures of bad, land that is desolate, waters that are dark and deep. Can anything good come from this? Maybe you are in a situation that feels this way, desolate, without hope. And as we see here, unlivable. Who and where is God 
in your story. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the black, the Spirit of God is brooding over the earth and we can sense that something big is about to happen. Have you ever heard the sound of thunder as the noise breaks out close to where you're standing? Imagine the voice of God cracking the darkness as he proclaims in verse 3, let there be light. And before our eyes, we see light, brilliant light. We may not know that it travels at 186,000 miles per second, that as you blink, it would be like a person running around the world seven times in a second or back and forth across Central Heights Worship Center over three million, three million times in a mere second. What we do know and instantly see is that the light brings distinction, shape, tone, and color, and God saw that it was good. In the descriptions of things on the earth in the Bible, sometimes it uses accommodating language, the, the language of appearance, like the earth has a dome over it, and when the Noahic flood happened, the windows of heaven were open. God again speaks, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. And at his command, millions and tons of water that cover the earth are split. And we see a vast expanse, which God calls heaven or sky. In verse 9, have you ever heard the pounding of the ocean waves against the shore on a stormy, windy day? There's such power in the crash of waves against the rocks, untamed. And God simply speaks again. And there is a great shift in the waters below. A deafening sound is heard as inconceivable masses of water are gathered to the boundaries God assigns them. And dry land emerges like rising yeast to shape the earth as God commands. Verse 11. In the same yom, or day, God speaks into existence the earth's vegetation. It's so vast and varied. Like today, scientists are still discovering plant species. Examining one plant alone is magnificent, and God speaks, and it is done. And as he has done before, God looks at what he has made, and he calls it good. Verse 13, there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. This week, we had sunshine. Have you ever gazed at the sun with the naked eye? Of course not. You shouldn't do that. Even though it's 150 million kilometers away, and yet on a clear day, so bright, it would blind you. God speaks, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then there's my favorite line, and also the stars. Written like an anecdote, he also made the stars. This is always amazing to me. On a clear night, like we can only see about 2,000 stars at a time. There are maybe 500 billion stars in the Milky Way. But what we see with our naked eye does not tell the whole story. We now know there are at least like 100 billion other galaxies out there with their families of stars. Mm -hmm. The Hubble telescope was put into orbit in 1990 and it circles the Earth about once in every 90 minutes. It is a large space-based observatory which has revolutionized astronomy by providing unprecedented deep and clear views of the universe, helping us to see it more from God's perspective. Like the nebula known as the pillars of creation, absolutely stunning. And God saw that it was good. I don't know about you, but this story has me breathless at this point, um, yet it continues. 
Some have seen a pattern where in the first three days, God creates a framework, and then in the next three days, he fills it. On day five, God fills the earth. God creates the ocean creatures and the birds of the air. He sees it and calls it good. The next day, he creates the living creatures that will move upon the land. Deer, elephants, giraffes, hyenas, the story is building, and the best is for last. So we've already got millions of stars, magnificent, megatons of water, powerful species of vegetation, animals that are glorious, but to this one alone, a special place. Now we read in verse 26, in the language not yet heard, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. There is lots more for us to explore here, and we certainly will, but let's not miss the, the obvious that the story conveys. God is the main character. He is the all-powerful creator. We are the created. The kindergarten version, God is big. We are not. And if you don't get this right, our lives will never quite work the way they should. We so easily slip into the mindset that we are the masters of our own destiny and we don't need God. Even Christians sometimes live their lives as if they, he doesn't exist. And if he does, that he is somehow their servant. Life works when we remind ourselves he is the creator and we are the created. God is powerful and big and we are not. There's another point to Genesis, Genesis 1 is making. God is not only powerful and big, and that would be reason enough, like to do whatever this all-powerful creative being wants us to do. He is also good. What he has made is good, lavishly good. God is not just efficient. As you see the variety of species and the stars, he is lavish and that lavish goodness is directed towards his people. As those who have seen this most clearly in Jesus, we can look back and know from Genesis that this has always been God's disposition towards us. God is good and for us. Instead of a violent, unreliable, unpredictable world, the creation described in Genesis is the work of a God of peace and order. God takes an uninhabitable world and creates until the world is made ready for the habitation of that which is distinct and above all else that he has made. He has made a home for mankind, a home for you and me. A physical world, not to escape from, but for us to be in relationship with God a world for us to inhabit with him and to enjoy. This worldview has to affect how we live in the moment. Think of your circumstances right now, whether good or bad, challenging or easy, to know the creator of the world, to know the creator of the world, so powerful. He speaks and things come into existence and that he is good and that he is for you and we know through Jesus Christ invites you into a relationship with him. And why would we look to anything, anywhere else for, for help, for joy, for your very life? 